Well, an intriguing title for this series, perhaps the um, most un unusual title that we've given to a set of sermons, but for good reason. Crux is a word that I'm guessing more than a few of us have used at some point. You're talking with another person about an issue that's important to both of you, and you really want them to know why you believe what you believe, and you want them to know what it is that you see as critical and really the central point of the issue that you're discussing together. And so uh, you very likely may have used, you said something like, well, here, here's the crux of the matter as, as I see it. When a person is trying to identify the crux of something, they're wanting to get to the heart of it. They, they, they want to peel back the layers and get to the very core of an issue. Beginning today, and for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at nine of these crux of the matter statements that are made by Jesus about some of life's most critical issues and, and issues that, that are so important that really they have the potential to be life-changing for all of us. This morning, we're going to begin with the most profound and life-changing issue of all. And here it is. It's the grace of God and our salvation. Now, I've been, I've been waiting for more than one week, actually, to begin unwrapping this with you this morning. And uh, I, I got to tell you that the verses that I'm going to read here in a minute, I've, I've read so many times in my life, and probably that would be true for a few of you here today, but they, they about knocked me off my chair and put me on my knees in worship as I dug into them again this week. So if you've got your Bible or your, your phone or iPad or whatever, uh, you can read or you can look up on PowerPoint as I read these verses for us. So John chapter 6, beginning at verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none, none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. There's quite a lot that uh, makes this thing of preaching uh, fascinating and, and, and a challenging experience. And 
Certainly included in all of those things is the wide range of, of personalities and ages and life experiences with any group of people listening to a preacher preach. And, and with this, everything that's gone into our lives that's led us to where we're at in, in our own spiritual journey, all of this combined have a part to play in how we respond to biblical truth. Even what's possible for any one of us to experience in, in one week plays into our, our response to what we hear in, in a sermon. Sometimes what it takes getting here on a Sunday morning can, can you know, influence our, our response. One of the things uh, impressed on me early in my preaching career is how it's possible to have two people sitting next to each other on a Sunday morning, and they're miles apart when it, when it comes to, to our own sense of, of worth and acceptability before God, which, which, which I found is, is another huge factor in our response to biblical truth. I've had enough years preaching and, and enough conversations with people to know that there are some of you here today who are so down on yourself that you really cannot imagine anybody loving you, and that, you would say, is especially true of God. And you've come here today with a whole lot of shame in your life, and either shame because of something that you've done or shame because of people in your life who've shamed you over and over again. And because of what they said and, and what they've done to you, they've, they've done a thorough job of making you feel worthless. You might be right now, you're saying... Well, that's me, Steve. You know, you're, you're describing me to a T. I also know that there are some of you here today who are at the very opposite end of this. You have so much pride and, and, and confidence in yourself that you find it hard to believe that, that, that anybody wouldn't be impressed with who you are and what you've done. It's, it's one of life's great mysteries, at, at least for you, that other people don't recognize how truly remarkable you really are. Yeah. Truth be known, uh, you think you're a notch above most everybody you know. It's easy for you to see other people's faults. It's easy for you to criticize. It's, it, it's very hard for you to be objective about yourself. You're, you're, you're so up on yourself that anything I might say about sin and doing wrong, it's, it, it's nearly impossible for you to hear. You... It, it, it glances off without any impact. You're, think, you, you're thinking to yourself, well, Steve must be talking about the person sitting next to me or behind me, but not me. You know, it's even possible to have been on center where you've had a realistic perspective of yourself, and, and, and then something happens that pushes you in one direction or the other. You, you were faced with a temptation, and you blew it. You you did the very thing you knew you shouldn't do, something that you could not have imagined yourself doing at another point in your life, but you did it. And, and now you're filled with shame and doubt, and you're, you're really doubting your own worth and your acceptance before God. Or you've come up against an unexpected tragedy that's brought terrible suffering and sorrow into your life, and it's caused you to stumble in your faith to do things out of anger or frustration or pain that, that really are the very opposite of, of who you are or what you've ever done before, and right now you're filled with shame. You, you, you might even be blaming yourself for what happened, and, and your shame is overwhelming you, and 
You're losing confidence in yourself and confidence in your relationship with God. Or at the opposite end, there was a time in your life when you were very realistic about yourself. But through the years, you've achieved a lot of success and significant milestones in your spiritual journey. You've heard enough people singing your praise that you, you've let it distort how you see yourself. You've, you, you've lost touch with the truth of your own sinfulness before a holy God, even to the point you become proud of your own righteousness. All of this to say, I'm convinced that today's passage has huge value for every single one of us. Even for any one of us who land at some point between these two extremes. Because what Jesus does is emphasize the absolute power of God's grace in our lives. And, and he does this in the strongest terms possible. If there's a punchline to these verses that I read... He's saying that a Christian is a Christian by the sheer grace of God alone. And this is true from the first moment that we believed in Christ, and it's true to the last breath we take. It, it never changes. You, you are what you are by the sheer grace of God alone. That's the message of these verses. Jesus is saying, you can't be a follower of me unless the Father draws you opens your mind to spiritual truth and gives you the power to come to me. And, and as much as this is true for how your spiritual life begins, it's equally true for how it ends. Your security rests completely in the power of God's grace. So, friend, if you're here today and, and you know you've blown it big time, you faced temptation and you gave in. You came up against an unexpected tragedy and you walked away from God. You made a, a career choice that, that gave you what you wanted, knowing it would take you away from God's best in your life. You married someone who doesn't share your faith and now you're living with regret, whatever it might be. You can know that there's nothing that you could ever do that would change God's grace in your life because, because the crux of the matter, the real truth is that God's grace never changes, never changes. And that's what we're going to see this morning in these verses that I've just read, and it's why I've been waiting all week for these, this moment. If you read the sixth chapter of John's gospel, the whole chapter, you'll see that Jesus miraculously provided a meal of bread and fish for what's been estimated be, to be between 15 and 20,000 people, a, a phenomenal event to experience. But unfortunately, it didn't have the result you might think it would. For, for, for most of the people, it didn't go any further than their stomachs and their desire for this to be repeated. And, 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 and really, they, they, this is basically what they said was, let's do it again, Jesus. We'll make you king. You overthrow Rome, and you keep the meals coming. <laughs> it's response to their response that Jesus gets to the crux of the matter, what that meal was all about, the grace of God in our salvation, and he makes two points. First of all, that God's grace is necessary, and then second, that God's grace is lasting. So let's look at the first one. God's grace necessary. Today's set of verses, the verses I read a minute ago, Jesus made two statements that point us to this profound truth. And, 
Boy, get this, everybody, all right? They're sit-up-in-your-seats kind of statements, statements that you don't want to miss. When, when Jesus gets to the crux of the matter, especially when it comes to our salvation, you don't want to miss what he says. Now, here's what he said. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right now, you might be asking yourself, is he saying what I think he's saying? Is he really saying that? Sure is. This is the very heart of Christianity, the heart of the gospel itself. You see, the reality of the gospel is that ultimately you don't become God's child because you took the initiative. Your salvation, my salvation is, is not primarily because either one of us invited God into our lives. David Platt, I think, said it so well in his book, Follow Me, and, and I'm just going to quote him, and we'll put it up on the screen. He said, before you were ever born, God was working to adopt us into his family. While we were alone in the depth of our sin, God was planning to save us. And the only way we can become part of God's family is through a love entirely beyond our imagination and completely out of our control. Christianity, he writes, does not begin with our pursuit of God, but with God's pursuit of us. Christianity does not start with an, with an invitation we offer to God, but with an invitation God offers to us. Boy, take it. Take a moment to think about this, all right? Let it sink in. It's amazing. Before you were ever born, way back in eternity, God had plans for you to be in his family. God pursued you. You didn't pursue God. And it wasn't you that first made the first invitation to God. It was God who made it. I mean, is that incredible or what? Feel free to say that's incredible. Right? <laughs> Again, the second of those two statements made by Jesus, he said, don't miss it. He said, no one can come to me, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you're sitting here today and you have the faintest desire, if you have the dimmest longing to have a relationship with God, to love God, to serve God. It means that God's strong arms are already pulling you to himself. You see, the truth is, you're not even capable of being concerned about God loving you and accepting you unless God was already drawing you to himself. The reason this is true is because what's true of all of us apart from God's grace, to put it bluntly, we're spiritually dead. And in this spiritual deadness, we're utterly incapable of coming to Christ because we're totally consumed with running from God. At the core of who we are, we're enemies of God with no re real desire for God. Well, I tell you what, I could take you to so many places in Scripture that show us this, make it very clear. Let me just give you two. From Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, as he said, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. 
this letter to the Ephesians, he, he said it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and, and, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. When Paul wrote to the, these believers in Ephesus, he meant that before God's grace in their lives, they were completely dead spiritually. Not partially dead, not almost dead, not halfway dead, not kind of dead, completely dead. dead. There wasn't the slightest bit of spiritual life in them. So let me ask you, anyone here ever hear someone who's died ask another person to give them life? You know, when a, when a man's heart or a woman's heart is flatlined, do they invite people around them to resuscitate them? I've never heard of that happening. The same is true for us spiritually. We need someone, someone completely outside of ourselves to call us to spiritual life, to give us this life, and this someone is God. You see, our problem is not simply that we've made some bad decisions, that, that we've messed up. Our problem to the very core of who we are is that we're rebels against God and we're totally incapable of turning to God and our only hope is God drawing us to himself. <laughs> oh, friends, you know, your salvation, my salvation is all because of God's grace. And when we understand this, it changes everything. It gives us an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God. It changes our passion for worship. It deepens our love for God like nothing else could do. It motivates us to serve God to the very best of our ability, where we're giving God our very best. It inspires us to be generous with all that God's given us. It makes us want to tell others what God's done for us. It makes us realize that no matter what we're going through in life, no matter how hard it can become, it's temporary. It's just a flash in comparison to where we'll spend eternity, an eternity that's guaranteed, that's final and forever. You know, we could stop right here and fall on our knees in worship. I know I could. Out of gratitude for the grace of God and drawing us to himself. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. It's overwhelming to think that God's done that for us. But there's even more that Jesus said about God's grace and our salvation. So we can't stop yet. But, but before, what we, before we see what more Jesus said about all of this, I, there's a story that I want somebody to share with you that I think is going to make everything I'm saying this morning very clear. And, and so I've asked Ryan Zink to join me up here again this morning. Ryan was up with me a couple weeks ago. And uh, that's a problem when you get in a small group with me, Ryan. You keep showing up on the platform, you know. Starting to figure that out. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so Ryan, I just want you to tell everybody um, what happened to you when you were one month old. I was adopted. You were adopted. Yeah. Isn't he cute? Man, I tell you what. So, um, 
So Ryan, was that your idea? You know, were, were you just like lying there as a one-month-year-old and thinking to yourself, you know what, I'd like to be adopted. No, nobody asked me. So you didn't make it happen? No. It wasn't you? Okay, so how did it happen? Uh, you know? Well, my uh, birth mother, when she found out she was pregnant, she was stationed at Offit, and uh, she didn't want uh, the birth father or her family to find out, so she requested a transfer to Okinawa, Japan. Spent several months over there and was debating whether or not uh, she was going to give me up for adoption there or come back here. Finally decided to come back um, just right before the due date. Came back to the States, uh, informed the birth father that she was pregnant, and then uh, had me and decided to give me up for adoption. And so she, and, 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 then, uh, uh, and then what else happened then? So there you were. She made that, I think, a very loving decision. And, and so then how did you end up being adopted? Did you, did you have anything to do with it? Then? I had nothing to do with okay, it. Okay, no. then what happened? Uh, well, I was adopted by my uh, parents today, and uh, I've been theirs for 33 years. 33 years. So, so let me ask you this. Did you ever have a bad day as a child? I mean, you were really bad, naughty, you know? <laughs> Several, yeah. Several of them. So did, did, your mom and, you know, did your mom and dad ever say, say to themselves where you heard them go like, well, I'm taking you back, you know? <laughs> Did they? No? <laughs> Not that I know of. Not no. that you know of. Mm. All right. Great. Thanks, Ryan. You bet. Good. All right. Hey. Hey. So guess what I'm going to talk about next? God doesn't take us back. God's grace is lasting. Again, look at this. This is what Jesus said in verse 37. Just love it. He said, he, he said um, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive out. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I can't think of anything better. It's the, it's the ultimate promise of security, and it centers around the grace of God. Jesus himself, the Son of God, says, I, I'll never drive you away. I looked up the definition of never just to make sure I really know what never means. I don't want to make any mistake about this, all right? So here's the definition. At no time in the past or future, on no occasion, not ever, not at all. This is right out of the dictionary, everybody. Not at all. Under no circumstances, not for a moment. Well, I guess never means never, right? Never. I mean, is that awesome? Is that cool or what? Never. He said, I'll never drive you away. And I love what he said Beginning in verse 38 and verse 39 and verse 40, he, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will, I will raise him up at the last day. The will of who? The will of God. The will of God the Father. The will of God Almighty. The will of the creator of the universe. The will of the infinite, infinitely holy and loving God who sent his one and only son to die for us. His will. Let me ask you, can you think of anything that would give you greater security in your promise of eternity than the will of God who created eternity? No. I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm convinced Jesus loved telling us this. Totally convinced. 
He said it again in the 10th chapter of John's gospel when he described himself as the good shepherd. I love it. I love it. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. and They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never, never perish. There's the word never again. No one, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. My father who, gave, who, who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, there's some things you never forget. I never forget how God did his drawing in my life at an early age. Some very intense drawing. I'm so thankful that God made it as intense as he did. I had parents who loved Jesus and who loved me. I had a church that taught me the truth of God's word. I, and, and I had a brother who prayed his heart out for me and whom I'm convinced was God's hound dog hunting me down, pursuing me big time. He kept on asking me if I had trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I mean, to the point where he got irritating. Until finally, 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 I came to Jesus as a nine-year-old boy. Stayed after Sunday school class. I told my teacher that I, I wanted to ask Jesus to be my Savior. You know, I could have had that conversation with my brother, but I wasn't going to give him the, you know, the joy of it. I'll never forget that day. I can remember praying that prayer. I can remember walking up from the basement of that old church building, standing by the door to what is now called a sanctuary, what was called a sanctuary back then, and we call it worship center today, and seeing my dad, and filled with this overwhelming sense of peace and joy, this sense that I had begun a whole new life, I'll never forget that. But there's something else I remember. I remember doing some of the same sinful things I had done before that Sunday morning, and not just once. As the week passed, I, I repeated those sins. And I mean, how you, you might ask yourself the question, well, how sinful can a nine-year-old be? <laughs> I guess sinful enough that it bothered me. A lot. Enough so that I wondered whether God still loved me. And, and, I, and I, I wondered whether or not I was still God's child until finally, finally, I went to that same brother. And with tears, told him what was troubling me. And I'll never forget, he said, he said, remember, Steve, when you were little and dad took you to town and you were going to cross the street Remember what dad did? He took your small hand in his large hand. And my, believe it or not, my dad had really large hands. And he said, when dad did that, Steve, how easy was it for you to let go? And I said, oh, no way, Larry. I couldn't do it. It was impossible. And he said, you know what, Steve? That's exactly what God does for you and me. He takes us in his 
hand, except he takes all of us into his hand. And he'll never, never let go. You know, I don't know um, how you're seeing yourself these days. But I do know that God sees you as someone he loves immensely. And I know this because he sent his precious son to be your savior. And so if you've come here today and you're filled with shame and, and you're wondering how anyone can love you, I am so thankful that I can say with total confidence, God loves you. And I believe you're here today because God is drawing you to himself. He's already put his arms around you, telling you that he loves you, and he promises that if you trust in, in his son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, you will be his child forever. We're going to share in communion the Lord's Supper in a minute, and I'd love to have you share that with us. And, and you can by just... Right now, I mean, right now, you could just, while I keep on talking, you could just kind of phase me out, and you could have a conversation with God, and you could say, God, I need Jesus as my Savior. And you'll become a child of God. Or it may be that you've come here today, and you're filled with pride. Pride in who you are and what you've accomplished. And, and as you've seen it all your life up to maybe this moment, you don't need God. You know, you've done quite well on your own. And, but you know what? I want to tell you this. That doesn't, I mean, even if you're thinking that way, God still loves you. <laughs> but for you to understand how true it really is, you need to believe that there is nothing in you that deserves God's love and nothing that you've done to earn it. And so you can have that same conversation with God where you can, before we take communion this morning, you can say, boy, God, guess I was wrong. Guess I was wrong. It's, it's all your grace, nothing in me. I want to trust in Jesus. Or it may be that you are a follower of Jesus. It might be that you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for many years. He is your Savior, but you've lost touch with the truth of God's grace. You know, it's possible that you become proud and self-righteous, and it's made you a graceless person in your relationship with others. And you know what? God still loves you. Still loves you. But you know what you need to do? You need to ask God to forgive you for how you've been. And you need to ask God to help you understand how, how true his grace really is, that it's still true. Without his grace, you'd be spiritually dead. And you, you perhaps need to ask God to help you become a person who's filled with grace toward others. I want to ask our host to come forward and, um, and just begin distributing the bread and, and the cup. And um, again, communion is for everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and uh, just remember, as the tray comes, you want to reach down deep and take those two cups that are in there together. And, uh, and then I'll come back and lead us. You know, just use this time. Make this a personal time for you and God. You know, maybe it's just a worship time. Maybe it's just a worship time. Maybe it's a confession time. Maybe it's an asking time, okay?